We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 uh, through chapter 2, verse 11 today. And so I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there in your Bible, whether you're a member of our church or not. Even if you are just visiting once, this, this will be important for you because it's, a, it's, it's a, an issue that, that is necessary for the whole church to hear. But it's especially important for us because it's intrinsic to who we are and who we're striving to grow to be. Because of the gospel, we are who we are. Uh, we, we are who we are as individuals. We, are, we, we don't claim to be anything more than sinners saved by grace. That's who this church, and in fact, if there's anyone in this church that's a member of this church that stands to say that they are in some way deserving of the, the, the goodness that they have received from God, then we would seek to show them how that's clearly untrue and how it's been demonstrated. We would be nice about it. It's not like we're going to punch anybody in the face with their sin, but, but we might hit them in the gut or something. Anyway, the reality is we, we are sinners saved by grace. That's who we are as individuals. But the reality is it's not just about who we are as individuals. Because of the gospel, we are who we are corporately. We are a church because of the gospel. It, it, it's as true corporately that we are sinners saved by grace as it is as, as individuals. In fact, the, the reality is, is that there's not, a, not, not really a passage of Scripture that speaks to individual Christianity. The, the, the Bible assumes corporate Christianity. Everywhere you look, even, even in the places where it speaks to a specific Christian, it's going to be difficult to separate that out from the broad teaching of corporate life together. The New Testament's clear. We aren't just a bunch of individuals. God didn't just save one person to be an individual person. He saved us to be a people. We are who we are because of the gospel, both individually and corporately. So because of the gospel, we are who we are. And because of the gospel, we do what we do. We live for Jesus' fame. We have a whole new reason for living. We have a whole new purpose, a whole new mission, a whole new, a whole new motive, a whole new thing to give ourselves to. Together, remember, this is not just about an individual sport. Together, we worship and we lead others to worship Jesus. Together, we unite. And you think, oh, well, it seems, seems kind of self-explanatory when you say unite. It seems like everybody should just understand that that's a together thing. It's been my experience in the number of years that we've done this that Almost always, as people come in from outside uh, the church, even from healthy churches around our city, that we come thinking that in some way everyone's supposed to do the uniting for us. Unity doesn't happen if we don't all take part in making it happen. Together, we unite together. We are citizens of God's kingdom and we are children of the king. We are united by him and called to unite because of him. We serve, selflessly serve with our time, our treasure, our talents. I am not ashamed to call our church to serve in ways that they don't want to serve. Because that's what Jesus set the example in. I'm not ashamed to call our church to give generously, sacrificially. Because that's what the example God has set for us in the gospel. I am not ashamed to say that we should use our God-given gifts and abilities for the good of the church. Because that is what God called us to do in Christ. It's always going to come at a cost. And while I have at times in my life been afraid to call, each, call people to that cost. Um, my Savior has grown me past that point. My faith in the gospel has grown to a place where I can see now that if, if you are going to be who God intends you to be, if we are going to be who God intends us to be, it is going to come at a cost of our self that we might find our life in him. Together we worship, together we unite, together we serve, together we proclaim the gospel to advance the reach of God's kingdom among us, and beyond us. The idea is that the mission, this idea of mission isn't just out there. We're seeking to proclaim the gospel to one another so that we believe it more fully. Every one of us have areas of our heart that, that, that just aren't believing the gospel. 
that in some way need to be reminded that God is enough. That Christ has satisfied everything that, that, that we long for. We need to hear this gospel regularly. Every week I seek to do that for you. Every week we gather together. We have the opportunity to serve together that the gospel might be proclaimed to brothers and sisters in Christ. And every week as we gather together proclaiming the gospel to brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the opportunity to make sure that every barrier except the gospel is removed for anyone who's not in this church to hear the gospel when they step foot in this church. This is, this is not just a gathering where you're to come and get. This is mission. What we're doing right now in this moment is mission as much as it is anything else. And so I would just, I would just say it this way. Uh, it's a hobby horse and I know I get on it a lot, but it's, it's I think, the clearest indication, uh, especially sitting here right now, There's at least six people, six adults sitting in rooms watching children who are as vital to this mission this morning as I am. They are missionaries doing the work of gospel mission. They may not be the ones speaking it this morning, but they are helping it be spoken without the barrier, without things to keep us from hearing it. You see, together we proclaim the gospel. Some of us are voices and some of us are servants that affect the enablement of the voices to be heard. But together we proclaim the gospel. This is intrinsic. This is, this is the essence of who we are as a church. This is, this is the essence of our vision and mission as a church. I could talk about that without, without I, I mean, I, I could make the rest of the time about that. Thought on it. I've walked through it. Every year we take time to do this. So, we, so often we focus on worship and mission, mission and worship. We, we say that the mission is to live our worship in such a way that, that others can see it and turn and worship. And then we say that worship, or, or that as we live the mission, it is worship. Do one, you do the other. Neglect one, you neglect the other. The, the scripture paints that picture. We've studied it for, for years now. But this year, as I consider who we are and where we've been this past year, where we're heading this next year, instead of simply looking at worship and mission, I I think the point of focus we need to take is unity. And here's why. As much as we think of unity as an issue that's supposed to be worked out in racism and in politics, the lesson I've learned this year and want to be sure to apply. I want to, I want to apply to my own heart, my own life. And I want to see it applied in the, in the life of our church. Is that division is never the result of diversity. Division between us is a result of our sin. Division is never the result of diversity. It's always a result of our sin. And while we're not going to air a bunch of dirty laundry this morning, that's not my intent, while we're not going to rehash some things that have gone on, I would suggest that we have experienced division as a result of sin in the lives of the people in our church. Some mine and some yours. But that is not what we've been called to. See, to look at us, you wouldn't expect us to be ever called or considered. The first words you use as you talk about our church, you wouldn't consider us as diverse. That's because most of the conversation about unity and diversity focus around racism and ethnicity. So multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, that, those are the kind of things that are being spoken about so much today. This is necessary. I don't want to take away from that. It's necessary. But if we aren't careful, we'll get so tunnel visioned on, on, the one, on that one aspect of diversity that, that we're going to miss out on other spectrums. The reality is we're a church made up of, of unique personalities. You guys are weird. I'm weird. That's okay. We can be weird together, Right? We are a church of unique perspectives and personalities. We have differing political perspectives. We're close to being evenly divided between male and female. 
We're white collar, we're blue collar, we're, we're upper class, middle class, and lower class in, in terms of social economics. We, we aren't highly racially diverse, but we're actually a very diverse group of people. But the division that has eaten at us over this last year, and really began a couple of years ago, is not a result of our diversity. It is a result of sin that wasn't dealt with and began to grow and began to spread. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything bad, and I'm not trying to point any fingers, and I'm not trying to lay any blame. I'm just saying now it's time for us to do something different. It's time for us to be repentant. And it's time for us to step up and be the people God has called us to be to do the things that God has called us to do. And to do that, we need to consider what it takes to be united. We need to consider what it is to be unified. To say that we are united or to say that we unite and then not to do it is a lie. It's hypocrisy. And that's not helpful. See... The beauty of this is, is that while the whole world around us understands that division is a, is a massive problem that they face, you can't turn on the news without even seeing examples of it all around you. You can't, you can't turn on the news or look at your Facebook feed without people talking about the problems between this two-party system or the, or the, the partisan politics. Sexism is a huge thing now, and, and racism has been an issue for a long time. Everywhere we turn, the world knows there's a problem And they think in some way that they're going to come up with some solution. Brothers and sisters, we actually can. While the world can dream about it, we can actually accomplish it. In fact, whether you realize it or not, you've already been given it. It's yours for the taking. It's yours for the enjoying. And that's, I think, I hope, what you'll see today as we study this passage from Philippians. So let's read it. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin verse 27. I don't know if I'll be able to read all the way through without getting excited and saying some things. We'll see what happens. But I love, I, I love Philippians. I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but let's just go. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for, your, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, we're not going to deal with this extensively. We're, I just want you to see there's, there's context here that you need to understand, you need to see. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he is, he is ecstatic about what's happened there, how they've partnered with him in the gospel. You can see that in the breadth of the letter. But he is dealing with a problem. He's dealing with an issue, a, a concern he has for the church. They are in, in gospel mission. They are doing the work, and he is seeing cracks of division. And he is calling them to be united. So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, picking up to, to chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He loved this church so much that even though he's not there dealing with it face to face, in the trenches every day with them, his joy is incomplete because they are not walking in unity. He loves them deeply. And he longs for their good. So complete my joy being of, of, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, or who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So some of you know that it was several years ago, um, some of us, several of us, memorized the book of Philippians from start to finish, word for word. We could sit and recite it to you. It took us uh, several Several weeks, I think about two or three months, it took us working through it regularly and memorizing it. And, and it amazes me even today that as I stand here, I, I can't recite it word for word. Like I can't recite that passage word for word. But it's still here. It's still floating around. It's still constantly coming to mind. It, it affects me in the way I view things. It changes the way I react and interact. It, 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 it's still richly rooted in who I am. During that time, we did a study... Through it, And one of the points that was made in that study is that Paul wrote this letter, and it's one of the most positive letters in the New Testament. It doesn't seem like he is correcting them for anything. It doesn't seem like he's coming down on them. Certainly not a book to the Galatians. Certainly not like the, book to the, to the first book to the Corinthians. There's a seemingly a much more positive tone here. And it just doesn't seem that he's dealing with any specific issue. But over the last several years, is that as this letter has just fumbled around in my mind, changed the way I... I mean, it, it affects everything because it's so ingrained. As it's happened, I, I've realized that there's a theme that's evident here. There is an issue, a concern he has, a correction he's calling them to. These are a people who, although by all appearances, are a healthy church, they are not a united church. In fact, if you flip over to Philippians chapter 4, you're going to get to see maybe even the heart of the, the conflict starts with two women, Yodia and Syntyche. I, I don't know if I said that right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, it doesn't matter. There's these two women. It seems to be at the heart of the conflict that he's now encouraging everyone to, to seek, to help, to quit being conflicted. You see, conflict and division is like a cancer. And where we didn't see it starting a couple of years ago, it, it spread in among us. It started with a little bit of gossiping, a little bit of dissatisfaction, a little bit of not getting my own way, a little bit of being asked to do something that's going to make me feel bad. And these little groups started to develop of people who didn't want to be a part of what the church was doing, but would rather sit around and talk poorly about what the church was doing. All that came to a head over this last year. So by all appearances on the outside, we can present ourselves as a healthy church because we got a lot of good things going for us. There's a lot of good things happening among us. There's a number of people I can point to and celebrate what God has done in them. But there's this cancer that's growing. A people committed more to themselves and more to the building of their own kingdom. A people committed more to what they want and rebelling and refusing to submit to one another out of selfishness. We're committed and seeking to participate in a gospel mission, and yet there are cracks of division that are causing concern. You see, this, I think, is exactly what Paul is dealing with in the church in Philippi. They're a generous church. They've sent him a massive gift. They've, they've, they've blessed him. They've partnered with him in the gospel. They've done good things. There are good things that can be said. There are good things that he does say. But over and over and over, everything comes back to this issue of unity. I think that's where we find ourselves. We're going to break this down in five categories. Importance of unity, expectation of unity, motivation for unity, the practice of unity, and the profit of unity. So that you can see exactly what's going on here and exactly what he's calling them to in this first part. But make no mistake, this first part influences much of what is said in the rest of the book. In fact, when you begin to see this as a thesis for the whole book, you can begin to see how... Him speaking about God working, or us working at our salvation and fear and trembling for it's God's will to work in us. Those kind of things you begin to see 
that it's God who enables us to live united lives. You begin to see the purpose for which he's saying it. So we're going to start, though, with the importance of union. I want you to just see right off the top how important it is. He calls the Philippians in verse 27. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we can't be worthy because we've already sinned. Like, we are sinners who deserve condemnation. Our ability to stand before God, to receive any good from God, is a result of His, of his grace and His unearned, undeserved, unobligated good actions toward us that have brought us life. This is all we have. We are unworthy, can never really be worthy. But Paul says now, act like you are. Quit living like you used to as Gentiles. Quit being like you used to be before you were his. And now act like you've always deserved it. Live out of this new identity that he's given you. Now, there are a number of practices that we can attach to that statement. There's a number of things that we could say, well, this is what I think it looks like to live in a manner worthy. In fact, when you think of a Christian's life, what it's supposed to look like, what comes to mind? What do you expect when you find out someone's Christian? Paul doesn't give us a long list here. He doesn't doesn't give us a bunch of defining characteristics. But he does show us one. People who are unified. People who are united together. That's what he's getting at when he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If the gospel is at work in us, this is the point I think he's making, if the gospel is at work in us, we must prioritize unity with one another to live like we're worthy of it. We cannot, we cannot live like we're worthy of the gospel if we are not living united lives in the gospel. Paul leaves us no room to think otherwise. We cannot assume that, oh, I can, I can go and worship on Sunday morning and I can sit there and not speak to anyone and not seek to live in relationship with anyone and I can go home and never be involved with the church in any other way. I can call out everybody else for their sin. I can be God's watchdog. I can be his protector of the gospel. I can go home and I can sit and even among my families, I can, I can pretend and act like, not pretend, that's probably too harsh, but I can present this Christian picture and still live a distinct and divided life from the church Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is that Paul is saying that is not a life worthy of the gospel. See, I, I can't prove it by, by what I'm about to say. I can't prove what I'm about to say. I, I, I don't have statistics or science behind it. You don't have to agree with me if you don't want to. I, I don't mind if you're wrong. It doesn't matter to me, but... I think when we picture what Christian life is supposed to look like, we think in categories of morality, right? A Christian is supposed to do this, this, and this. And I don't have to tell you what that list is. You have your list, right? And Christians aren't supposed to do this, this, or this. And again, I don't think I have to tell you your list. I think you have your list. That if you see a Christian person doing this thing or believing this particular doctrine or you think less of them. If you see a Christian not doing the things that you do, you think less of them. I don't want to say that that is totally misplaced. I think thinking less of them is misplaced. I think understanding that there is a moral compass, a moral reality that we're called to as Christians, I think that's, that's something to be considered. But what I don't think in the American church, especially a church that so heavily emphasizes individualism, that we have ever elevated unity to the place that Paul just elevated it to. He unites uni- unity in the church with a life that's worthy of the gospel. So if we aren't seeking to live united lives in the gospel, it's impossible to say that we're living lives worthy of the gospel. Now, I'm not not calling us to success. I'm calling us to take the responsibility, to, to take on the role, to pursue it, to strive for it. We can't force unity because we can't force how anybody acts. 
or how anybody receives that or how anybody responds. All we can do is take responsibility for ourselves, trusting that if everyone does it, it happens. And it's a beautiful thing when it does. See, if we, if we won't prioritize unity among believers, no matter how moral we are in any other areas of life, we aren't living in a manner worthy of the gospel. No matter how good we are doing in other areas, we are lacking in this one. No matter how healthy we think we are, we aren't as healthy as we'd like to be. Without unity, I want you to see just how important is the implications of this. Without unity, worship and mission are affected. They're going to be hindered. The scripture clearly demonstrates repeatedly we're never, we were created to live, we were never created to live as individuals. You can see that in the garden. When, when the man was alone, God said that wasn't good. He needed the woman. Men, as much as you don't want that to be true, it's true. Women, don't take that too far because you need us too. But it's not just, it doesn't stop at the man and the woman. In the New Testament, as God is providing gifts, He doesn't give everybody the ability to do everything. He shows us in the church and the way He gifts people and puts people in need that we are dependent creatures. We're dependent upon one another. He gives some gifts of words and some gifts of service. He gives some gifts of administration and some gifts of leadership and some gifts of mercy. There's a reality that he's got this, and Peter talks about that we're stewards of God's very grace, that each of us are managers of God's grace in different ways, and how desperately we need each other if we're going to experience the fullness of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, not only were we not created, we were not saved to live as individuals. When we fall into sin, if we're by ourselves, who can pick us up? Remember, the, remember from Ecclesiastes a couple of months ago. The cord of three strands is not easily broken. We need each other. This is who God created us to be. He didn't save a bunch of individuals through the gospel. He saved a people to himself. And now, if we are to love him, we must love one another. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I would be so bold as to say, you can't say you love God if you don't love his people. How can you love something you can't see if you won't love what's right in front of you? You cannot say you are serving God if you don't serve his people. If we're going to live the mission of worship, And worship God as we do His mission. We have to do it together. Because I can't do it by myself. And you can't either. This is not an individual sport. We have been raised and trained and taught that Christianity is personal. It's all about me and my personal relationship. Throw that out the window. It's trash. It's a lie. It is about us. We are not a group of people that you throw on your social calendar when it suits you. We are a people who stand together and absorb the weights and the burdens of this broken world. That's what he says. That's what he's pointing us to. If there is any sense in which you are here today, if you are a part of this church in any way, and you are not striving for unity, and you are not seeking to live at one with the people who God has put you among, repent. Quit lying to yourself about how healthy you are and what a great Christian you are because you got the right doctrine, because you got the right practice, because you got... If you are not... Striving for unity. You are not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Repent. Unity is important. And unity is expected. Paul expects unity in the church. He lays it out as an expectation to be seen. He, he, he expects it to be the report he hears. Again, we could go back in verse 27 and see it. Whether I'm there with you or not, I expect to hear it. I expect that that's a report that comes back to me. 
that you guys are standing united. Then as chapter 2 begins, he kind of takes a side step there to give us a perspective of of some other things. But he comes back to unity at the beginning of chapter 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, that's the same language, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's calling us to unity. He's expecting unity. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then there should also be unity also. I think the point he's making is this, is if the gospel is at work in us, unity among God's people is an attribute that makes us distinct from the world. It should be something we find. Everyone else in the world is going to put on a form of unity. The clearest example I think of this is, is the, the civil rights movement of, of the 50s and 60s. I, I, there, there were strides made. There were things that were made better because of that. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We got rid of Jim Crow laws. Certainly lives, lives were made better. There was a greater amount of equality recognized between white people and black people. It was a necessary thing. But here we stand... What is that? I don't do math well, especially on Sunday mornings. However many years later, how many decades later. And we've just found out, surprisingly so, it seems like, because people seem in shock that this is true. Racism is still alive and well in the United States. Why should that surprise us? The world will only ever know a veneer of unity. They will only ever know what it looks like to have a, 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 a centimeter of thickness in the depths of the sea of what it is to be unified. They will only ever be able to cover up with it. It will never invade who they are. Paul expects it. If the gospel is in us as a people, it, unity should be evident in us also. The gospel changes everything. And here's why. Because the gospel has solved our biggest problem. The gospel solved your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not where your next meal comes from or whether or not you're able to pay the bills or whether or not you're going to be able to drive some fancy car or have a two-car garage or, or achieve some American dream. That is not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is whether or not you will stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or get out of here. That's your biggest problem. The gospel solved that for you. It made you acceptable. It's given you access. It's forgiven you. It has, ma- it has redeemed you. Through it, He has adopted you. He has called you holy and blameless. He has fully welcomed you in. The gospel has solved your biggest problem. It has reconciled you to your God. And it has reconciled us to each other. You see, when sin divided us from God, it also divided us from each other. And it doesn't just do half its job. When God applies the gospel to us, when, when we believe the gospel and begin to enjoy the fruits of the gospel, if it is truly at work in us, unity is a byproduct of that work. Unity is an outcome. It is a distinct, natural distinction. It is an attribute of the church, not something simply that we have to practice. It becomes an identifier. If unity isn't identifying us, then there's something about the gospel that we've forgotten or disbelieved or worse yet, never had. This isn't something that, because it's so important, it's not something we can just walk away from. It should be the thing that we, that we expect to find any time we walk into a group of Christians. If you walk into a group of Christians and you hear gossip and you hear backbiting and you hear arguing and fighting, that's a major problem. I don't know exactly what you do in that particular circumstance. You're welcome to confront them and say, that's not the gospel. Probably should do. Wisdom may dictate something different. But brothers and sisters, 
when we walk into a group of Christians and the gospel is at work in us and among us, there should be a sense of family. In a lot of ways, it's like we become like strings on an instrument. I was thinking about Tristan playing his guitar. These strings are different. They make different sounds. They look different when you look at them closely. But when they're strummed, they make music. That's the beauty of what should be happening in the church. An expression of God's glory that's pleasing. That, that's, that's beneficial. That's, that's enjoyable. God has made this possible. So I'm not ashamed to say that we should expect it of each other. I'm not ashamed to say that if, if, if you're one who is not working hard for unity in the body, that I expect more of you because you're my brother and sister in Christ. If the gospel is in you, I expect you to be fighting hard for unity. And you should expect the same from me. In fact, let me just turn this on myself. If you ever hear of me knowing of division in the church and just ignoring it and not caring about it and not thinking about how we seek to fix it. If you ever see your leaders turning a blind eye to division and backbiting and gossip and hurt and, and just harsh, harshness to each other. As much as I expect it of you, you should expect it of me. You should call me on it. If we don't work for unity and we don't do it together, it's available. But we aren't going to get to enjoy it. God's already done the work. He's already given us the gift. And Paul's telling us we've got we to put it on. We've got to practice it. See, until Jesus returns, where we live, it's going to be divided. We're going to struggle with division. There's always some sort of feud going on. But in the church, because of the gospel, because of what he has done, we can and should expect unity. So we see the importance of unity. We've seen the expectation of unity. Now the motivation for unity. And you can see this in chapter 1, verse 20, 29, and then chapter 2, verse 5. Where, where, where we see in, in chapter 1, verse 29, he talks about the, the, that for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We see there the motivation for unity is our common faith in Christ that's been given to us, right? It's a gift from God. And our common suffering that's also, whether you like it or not, it's been given to us. It's a gift from God to suffer for Christ's sake. And then you slip down to chapter 2, verse 5, and you begin to see that there's a call, not just, to, not just our new faith and our new suffering together. In chapter 2, verse 5, he points out a new mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not going to be yours, not could be yours, it is yours. We have a whole new attitude, a whole new perspective, a whole new way of approaching things, a whole new way of thinking about things. Brothers and sisters, if the gospel is working us, unity among God's people isn't just a command to obey, but the natural desire of a new mind. And I could add a new heart. If the gospel is at work in us, the unity among God's people isn't just a command to obey, but the natural desire of a new mind. Paul does command it. He's commanded it in this passage. He commands it in nearly every letter he writes. But it's not just a command. He doesn't expect us to be marked by something that distinguishes us because we put it on. He expects us to be marked by something that is put on us and then practiced by us. He isn't asking us to do something in order to become something. He's asking us to apply what God has already done because we've been made something. Our common faith unites us together. Our common suffering unites us together. This new mind that we now have in Christ unites us Together, God's work through the gospel makes this unity possible. It changes our hearts, it changes our minds, and gives us this new desire. If you're sitting in the room today, and you don't have a desire for unity with God's people, it's not the fault of God's people, and it's not a fault of the gospel. You're either not believing something about the gospel... Or you don't have 
the gospel. This is what he does. It is the natural work of the gospel in us. It is God's fruit being born out among us. So we have the expectation, the, the, the importance, the motivation, and now let's talk about the practice. And we'll move a little more quickly. I, I know, uh, I, again, I could talk about this way too long, but it's, it is important. The practice of unity. He not only tells us how important it is and how, how we can be motivated by it, he not only talks to us about the expectation of it, but he gives us some picture of what's expected and how, how, or how we practice it, how we, how we put it into play, how we put it into action. First, he tells us in verse 1, 27, he also calls for it in chapter 2, that to be of one spirit. Unite in one spirit. Be of one mind. Be of, this is not uniformity. It's not being all the same. It's not being cookie cutters. It's being united in the midst of diversity. It's being all about the same thing. Just consider this for just a second. When God saves us, He does a work in us that takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them on Him. When God saves your brothers and sisters, He takes their eyes off of themselves and puts them on Him. So that now our focus is all the same. So that now we have new priorities that are the same. We have uh, a new object of worship that's all the same. He's calling us to unite in, in a way that is united in the midst of our diversity. It's not, it's, not, it's not about dressing the same. It's not about looking the same. It's about being united. And he, he says specifically, united in one spirit. Now, several commentators will strive to separate this out to try to determine whether Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit, like being united in the Holy Spirit, or whether he's talking about being united in spirit, like together in spirit. And, and I think to try to make that distinction is, is probably, uh, well, I don't think it's helpful. I think it's both. Because the reality is the Holy Spirit is what unites us. It is the same spirit alive in me that's alive in you. But it's our spirit together. There's a commonality and intimacy and a connection that we're able to share because of that. I'll use this as an illustration. Walking, maybe you've heard me tell this story. Walking in China, out in the middle of nowhere, we're in the—I mean, out in the boonies in China. I mean, that's not where people particularly think of, typically think of when they think of China. But we were not in a big city. We were out in the middle of nowhere, little village that we were going to be uh, uh, doing some mission work in. And we walked onto a bridge. It's called a Wind and River Bridge. It's really cool, old, uh, old, ancient um, history uh, among these particular people in China. Walk onto that bridge, and there's these women on each side of it that are, like, selling stuff. That's kind of their market. And as we're walking by, we hear them. They're, they're all singing the same song. And we knew the song. Couldn't tell you what, they were, what the words they were saying, but the melody was a hymn. It was like, uh, I, I, I can't remember the hymn, what it was. I, I wish I could. It was so crazy. We'd heard about these people. We'd, we'd heard that this was a, uh, we'd heard that they were there, but we didn't expect that to happen to us. But there they are singing. And... And we sat down, and in English, we sang the same hymn they were singing. Now, whether we were on the same verse or or not, I I don't know, because you can't understand what they're saying. But we sang this hymn together. And there was a a connection. There was a a unity there. There was a a friendship, a kinsmanship. There was was this beautiful moment that we got to share. In fact, because of that moment, we were brought in and invited in to be part of the underground church that met in that village. These people hiding out, just worshiping Jesus. What a beautiful moment it was. And they simply trusted us because we sat down and worshiped in two different languages. You see, that's the kind of spirit I think he's talking about. The spirit that binds us together, the Holy Spirit and the spirit that we share together. First John five, first John chapter one five through seven. Another way I think that this could be illustrated. This is a message says this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now look there in verse seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Who is the one another? Who is it that we have fellowship with? 
John's writing this to a group of believers. Is he saying we have fellowship together if we walk in the light? Or is he saying we have fellowship with God if we walk in the light? See, I think we can wrap ourselves around a stick trying to figure out exactly what he means when he probably means both. Because to have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with his believers. To have fellowship with his believers is to have fellowship with God. We cannot have one or the other. You cannot pick and choose. There is no such thing as I love God, but I don't love the church. Brothers and sisters, unity is, a, uh, uh, to practice unity, we must unite in one spirit. Maybe the closest relationship we get to see that expressed is a marriage relationship, where there's a connection, an intimacy, a closeness shared. Now, I don't want to be your husband, and I don't want you to be, that would be weird. That's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this closeness, this ability to know one another, to experience life together. To know that you have me and I have you. That's what he's calling us to. I think a great example of this in common day era is R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Now R.C. Sproul's dead and he's, he's gone to be with the Lord and he's now uh, more joyful than we are. But these two men stood on opposing ends of several views. John MacArthur is dispensational in his perspective of the scripture, and he is a credo-baptist. That means he, it's a, he baptizes believers. R.C. Sproul was a covenant in his view of the scriptures, covenant theology in his view of the scriptures, and he was uh, um, uh, pedo-baptist. Thank you, sorry. He baptizes babies. There's a lot of other distinctions that can be made. Those are probably the two you'll be most familiar with. But they were friends. They shared stages together. They didn't let their doctrines that are secondary, tertiary, quadrucianary. I don't even know how far you could go with that. They didn't let all these silly doctrines and and uh, theological righteousness divide them. Brothers and sisters, we unite in the essentials. In the spirit of God, we stand together. And we let these secondary issues. Yes, I, I, I hold mine with conviction. But we should not let them divide us from one another. How sad it is. How sad it is. Unite in spirit that we might walk closely together. Unite in gospel mission. Again, verse 27, we see it. They're engaged in this mission. They are standing firm for the, go- for the faith of the gospel. Because of the gospel, together we have this whole new purpose to live for. That's where we started. Together in the gospel, we, 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 we live to make Jesus' fame known. Together we worship and lead others to worship. We unite for this purpose. We serve each other to equip and empower each other to this purpose. We work together to make sure the gospel is proclaimed in this world. On Sunday mornings, that's what we're doing. On community group nights when we're meeting in neighborhoods, that's what we're doing. Together gathering around the gospel so that we can embody the gospel and represent the gospel and proclaim the gospel. We've got to do this. If we're not going to unite in spirit and unite in gospel mission, what are we going to unite in? Well, I'm a parent. Well, we can, we can get together in that. That's not unity. And what does that say for people who aren't parents? Well, I'm married. Well, okay, we can, we can have some commonality there. But that's not unity. And what's that say about the single person? Well, I'm oldish. I'm not old yet. Oldish. <laughs> what about? No. If it's not gospel mission, and and seeing the mission done together among us and beyond us, if it's not in spirit, you can hold some things in common, but that's not going to attain real unity. Third, he says, unite in true humility. We see that in chapter 2 as he's come back. He comes back from his little talk about suffering in Christ and the, the mission that he's been given. He calls us to unity. And then in verse 3, he turns and he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How do I work towards unity? I humble myself. Nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of conceit, 
Nothing seeking to serve myself. Nothing to, to just better my life at the cost of others. This isn't a false humility where we just think poorly about ourselves. This isn't about just pushing ourselves down and considering ourselves worm in the dirt. This is a recognition that you are a child of God. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. But instead of elevating yourself up above all the other saints around you, you say, you know what? I'm not going to call equality with my brothers and sisters a thing to be grasped. I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to consider them more significant than me. That's exactly what Jesus did with his father. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. There is no such thing as unity without humility. We will never achieve it. Because naturally in our sinful selves, we are prideful, arrogant, self-centered people. Until we have shot that person in the head and humbled ourselves before each other so that we can serve each other, so that we can love each other, so that we can stand by each other, not at the cost of others, but for the benefit of others, there will not be unity. We must humble ourselves if we are going to unite. And we unite in selfless service. Verse 4. Chapter 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is not a call to say that you don't have interests or that you don't have needs. You absolutely do. I know you do. I do. We all do. Our problem is we're so, so focused on our own that we can't consider somebody else's for a moment. We can't consider how other people are hurting. We can't consider what other people need done. We can't stop and think. We can't step back far enough from our own. Paul says, humble yourself and unite in selfless service. Consider others' interests as significant as your own. As much as you want your need met, be instinctively looking to meet the needs of others. This is radically different than most of us have been trained to go to church trained to interact in church. We go to church and we measure what it has for us. What's it mean for me and my family? I want to make sure I get mine for my four and no more. Well, Paul is saying, you're not just called to be attenders at church. You're called to be participants in church. You come seeking what you can give to each other, not what you can take. Now, it seems like that's going to be costly. And it might feel like it at first. But I want you to imagine a body of believers that actually practices that. I want you to imagine what it might be like just for a moment to be so concerned about others' needs that you don't have needs anymore because so many people are concerned about yours. That's not the pastor's job. That's the church's job. I hope you've seen it modeled in your pastors. But what would that be like? What do you think would come from that? You see, it might feel like there would be a cost. But I think Paul demonstrates to us that there is a profit. The one thing in this life that we might actually call a gain is what we can get from God. Endurance. Again, top of chapter or middle of chapter one, verse twenty seven, standing firm, enduring to the end. Who does that well by themselves? You ever started a workout plan? Come on, it's New Year's, right? Like we're, who's who's starting to work out tomorrow? Maybe maybe you'll wait till next week. You know, start hard on the first. Well, well the first is probably not the right day for it. Let's start Monday after the first. That's the day we'll do it. How much better would it go if you did it with people as opposed to doing it by yourself? We gain endurance. We gain encouragement. 
over and over, we, we, we see Paul encouraging us in this, that, that we don't have to be afraid, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Like, but I'm so scared to share the gospel, but if I've got brothers and sisters standing that are united with me, I don't have to fear the loss of that relationship because I'm satisfied with the ones God has given me. I don't have to fear being rejected because those who are with me are standing by me. Imagine what it is to be encouraged and standing firm, holding our ground, not giving up on our convictions. We can be bold in this. We can be assured of our salvation of this. Again, he goes on, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. This unity that bears itself out in enduring together encourages us because it gives us boldness and, and, and courage to stand our ground, to stand firm. But it also gives us confidence and assurance of our own salvation. And we're not doubting when things don't go our way because we got people by us. we got the grace of God in and among His people surrounding us, emboldening us, encouraging us. In chapter 2, we get comfort in Christ. Comfort from love, or I'm sorry, encouragement from Christ, comfort from love, uh, participation together in the Spirit, affection and sympathy together. If those things are evident, then unity should be evident too, but they are the things that, that, that they're the encouragements, they're the fruit. Brothers and sisters, maybe we, we, we get bitter and bothered in the church because we're not really working to be unified together. Maybe we're scared of sharing our faith and standing firm in the gospel because we're not unified together. And maybe we don't know joy like Paul wants to know joy because we haven't prioritized unity together. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Oh, complete my joy. It strikes me. He loves him so much. That their unity is, is, is keeping him from enjoying this. Division is always going to breed contempt and depression, hurt. But unity, the joy, the joy that you long for, the pursuit of happiness, the, 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 the desire to have happiness, it's, it's, it's on the other side of unity. One commentator I read from says this, The gospel of Jesus has impressed on Paul the counterintuitive truth, the pursuit of happiness when fueled by selfish ambition is bound to end in bitter disappointment, whereas the highest, strongest joy surprises and overtakes those who find their hearts so drawn to others' well-being that their personal comfort and pleasure slip from their view. If we pursue happiness, we're never going to arrive there. If we want it, fight for unity. Find joy. And this last one, I couldn't come up with one word. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to say it in one word. Maybe, I, maybe you can. But this last prophet that we gain in uniting together, humbling ourselves, seeking to serve selflessly, uniting in the Spirit, I think it's embodied in what we see God do for us that we can't do ourselves. And I think it's exemplified in what Christ does in this example. He was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Brothers and sisters, humbling ourselves and fighting for unity will not exalt you to the place of Christ, but when you humble yourselves, God will exalt you. He exalts the humble and he lays down the proud. That's the promise of the scripture. You see, the pursuit of making ourselves glory, bringing ourselves glory, bringing our, uh, attaining glory for ourselves, that pursuit of that will leave us empty. The profit of fighting for unity and humbling ourselves to see unity happen is that we get to see God do what we can't do. He actually accomplishes the very things that we long for. I, I long for you. 
to know this kind of unity. To die to yourself that we might worship together. To die to yourself that we might serve together. To die to yourself that we might mission together. To die to yourself so that we might stand and enjoy our Creator together and see the beautiful things that He will do that we can't do ourselves. Let's pray.